Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Manda Scott. Manda is a veterinarian, an author, a shamanic teacher, and a climate crisis activist. I've been thinking a lot recently about language and the role it plays in behavior change. That was the launching point for an afternoon's conversation with Manda. Manda started us off in an unexpected place. She introduced the topic of oxytocin, and you'll see what the connection is between that and language and climate change. What are we going to talk about today? Well, there's a question. What are we going to talk about? So you've been off meeting with some interesting people. You've been reading some interesting things. Mm. This whole, for me, this looking at, you know, how do we talk about what's in front of us without paralyzing ourselves? I mean, I think that's really important. Or without, without strengthening the very thing that we want to move away from. Yes. And, and you yes. know, the, the American politics just seems to me to be the perfect example of everything that can go wrong in terms of mm. try, trying, to, trying to convince somebody that you've got a point of view that needs to be listened to, um, that, yes. that we seem to be incapable of talking about our own positions and instead we want to tear down the other whatever the other is and and what i observe in that is that we just strengthen the counter positions and that's no good so i think that so all of this is tied together uh in terms of what do we want to move towards? What are we trying to create with with the effort that we're putting into this? Where are we in terms of building habits? All of those all of those topics apply. Yes. Okay. So what's coming up? One of the th- really interesting conversations I had recently was around oxytocin, um, and this isn't quite as left field as it sounds. So. Of the four things that give us absolute internal reinforcement, we have dopamine, serotonin, endorphins, and oxytocin. And my understanding of oxytocin was that it was the hormone of social bonding, that it's, you know, it's released at parturition in the mare or the cow or the woman or the bitch or the whatever. Um, it, it causes contractions in the uterus. It causes the expression of milk. And then it's also... When I was doing physiology as a student, that was all we knew. But then they discovered a lot of oxytocin release in close couple bonding. And also, I think, in in soldiers bonding. Anytime when humans bond. And there's a neat study. And I think it was naked mole rats, but I could be totally wrong. Um, Where in the the subspecies that were uh, highly social had these high levels of mm. of oxytocin and the ones that were solitary did not and you could yeah. change the group structures 
by uh, changing the level of oxytocin in their oh, system. Oxytocin. Yeah, so all goes along with that. And bonobo chimps have really high oxytocin. But what this guy said was oxytocin is also the hormone of tribalism. That it's the thing that is triggered and that feeds us and that gives us these little rushes when we are in a state where we are defending our tribe against assault from the other side. So, which feeds into, there was a very interesting study that Jonathan Haidt quotes in his amazing book, it's uh, The Righteous Mind. And they did a study where they did functional MRIs on people who held quite strong political beliefs. And this was way back in you know, 2010, when we thought we were polarized, but we had no idea. And they watched certain centers in the brain. And they showed people videos of their preferred politicians. And you get the the rush of this is my tribe when you see the one that's your preferred and you get the rush, an equally big and equally addictive rush of that's definitely not my tribe when you see the other guy. And then they played them videos or showed them television, uh, sorry, newspaper articles of that either proved that your guy was as good as you thought or undermined your guy or woman. Obviously, guy. I'm using guy in, right, the, in right. the gender neutral sense. Right. And... Um, and, and if you saw your guy was as good as you thought, that, that gave you a little blip. If you saw that your guy was bad, it caused cognitive dissonance because your guy isn't bad for you. He's your guy. So you there was a lot of confusion, but there was no move towards thinking that he isn't your guy. There was just, but, but you know, that that's not right. That can't, be, that can't be right. But then having, if they had got to that cognitive dissonance and then they played them something that vindicated their original belief, so actually, our our side is right. They got a massive hit of of everything: dopamine, endorphins, oxytocin, huge blip of the same kind of rate, size and proportion that you would get if you snorted a huge amount of cocaine. Good grief! Okay. So, and then if they if they showed them something that said that. Your guy was actually uh, even worse than anybody thought. What what happened in that case? Did they do that? It doesn't. It doesn't touch it. You can't. You can't do that. It doesn't work. There is nothing that you can do. You know, this is Trump said. I could shoot somebody in what was it Fifth Avenue yeah. and nobody would blink. And we've. I you know. I, I don't want to be partisan, but we have just seen a, a kind of astonishing display in the impeachment. And it is this in action. He is our guy. Therefore, he is right. And and we are now beyond the state. Yeah, when Nixon was impeached. He is our guy, but my goodness, he made a mistake. Oh, so maybe we need to get rid of him. We're way beyond that now. It can't happen. It actually, you know, these people are physiologically incapable because their decisions are made at amygdaloid level. This is something that we really need to take on board because it's, this is also something that was a very interesting series of MRIs that I would like to see repeated now because I think it would be different. But back in 2014, I think, they did, again, functional MRIs of committed Republicans or committed Democrats. And the committed Republicans had significantly bigger amygdalas than the committed Democrats had significantly bigger cerebral cortices. And this went, you know, this is within the academic circles where people on the whole are slightly got more progressive bias. And there's this, oh, hilarious, Democrats are brighter than Republicans. But it's not, actually. It's that Republicans have spent quite a lot of time being afraid that their worldview was under threat and their worldview because you know, you've looked at Lakoff a, world, a, 
a strict father worldview, which tends to be the Republican worldview, is predicated on fear. It's the fear of my authority may be undermined. My way of life may be dying. My people may be threatened by people of a different color or a different sexuality or a different gender who are impinging on my God-given rights. Democrats at 2014, you know, the kind of progressive liberal way of the world, we, I don't know about you, but I grew up believing that things were going to continue to get more liberal forever. That's the way things went, that, that yeah. sexuality was becoming more acceptable, that, that women's equality was becoming a thing, that colour was becoming less and less of an issue. All of these things, that, that was just the way human development went. And we didn't know what it felt like to be on the other side of that. But the big amygdalas showed what it felt like to be on the other side of that. But what we also know from experience is that on the progressive side, we have a tendency to go, yeah, I know you're afraid, but here are all the very rational reasons why you need not to be afraid because everything is absolutely fine. And you could see that in the last American election. Trump would be there going, make America great again. And Hillary Clinton was going, well, you see, the reasons why he can't possibly make America great again are list of 12 things. Yes. And it may be very rational, but the people listening are not making decisions on a rational level. And anyway, we know from Lakoff that, yes, I mean, you're not speaking to the committed Republicans or the committed Democrats at that point, because the committed Democrats are going to vote for you whether you stand up and say Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall or you read the Magna Carta. It doesn't matter. And the committed Republicans are never going to vote for you, even if you stand up and say, I've just discovered the cure for cancer and climate change and world peace. But the ones in the middle whose votes are the only ones that are up for grabs hear Trump make America great again. They don't hear anything else. And and look what happens. So, and and I think we just saw that in the British election. So we, I, I just drove to Norfolk to, which is a long way from me, and to interview somebody over there. And they still have banners at the side of the road that just say, "Vote Boris, get Brexit done." And there's a picture of Boris Johnson looking very Churchillian, which which feeds into the the whole ethos. And and that it was a purely that was an absolute speak to the amygdala. And we were going, well, 10 years of neoliberal capitalism isn't working very well. We think we could make it much better by renationalizing all the industries and you know, all of the stuff that we said. And if you sat, sat people down and went, would you not like the rail service to be renationalized? Because, you know, I don't think it's really working as a private company or water. There isn't a, a, there is no country in the entire world that has privatized their water and sewage, even America. And it really isn't working. Do you not think it'd be good privatized? They go. Well, yeah, but nobody votes on something where you have to sit them down and explain it. So so what we have now is a tribal system where everybody gets triggered simply by being in the presence of the other side. And it, and it creates such huge surges of internal hormones that our rational minds are not ever going to be able to overcome that. We have to get to a point where the tribes aren't there anymore. That's our challenge is how do we reach across the divide and go, we are people. And I listened, did you listen to the Ezra Klein podcast? Yes. And he said that he interviewed uh, Obama talking about race and, and saying, you know, 
this was in 2014 and, and Obama was at that point you know, quite a divisive person in that there were the people who loved him and the people who hated him. And, and he said, what are you going to do about this? And he said, well, yeah, that's the case when we're looking at the tribes of politics. But when we're all standing around the baseball field and our kids are playing or we're having a barbecue together or, you know, there's been a car crash and we're all trying to help out, then we're just people. And he's right. We need somehow to detoxify this political system. Because otherwise it's yeah. it's going to carry on. Detoxify it or sidestep it in some way. I mean, so what are what are the alternatives? What are the solutions? We're we're in these systems. Yeah. I don't know. If I knew the answer to that, Alex, I would be out there doing it. There's a very interesting movement in the States which I'm trying to bring over here. They're calling it the one party movement, which over here are the no, the one nation party. Over here, it really doesn't work because that's what the Tories call themselves. But anyway, um, it's a young man who has said he's taken Daniel Schmachtenberger, who's who's one of your very great young thinkers. He's well worth listening to. And Schmachtenberger's thesis is if we continue to have rivalrous behaviour, so basically tribal behaviour, and we continue with exponential weapons growth, then we will render ourselves extinct. It's only a question of when this is going to happen. Therefore, if we see that, we each have an absolute duty to reduce the rivalrous behavior. So this guy has taken this, or this group of people have taken this idea, and they are trying to set up a politics that is not rivalrous. The problem is, and he's and, and I listened to a podcast about them, and, and he's going, well, you know, first we need to win at the county level and the mayor level, and then we, you know, win the local senate. And I'm thinking, but you're talking about winning, yeah, in a in a system that that sets people up as tribes. And and then you're going to go, okay, guys, we're not tribes anymore. And I'm not certain that the people who's got less votes than you are going to hear you say that. Um, so it's a very interesting experiment. But yeah, I'm I not think, sure I can even picture what, yeah, it, what it would look what like. It would look like because yeah. you're always in an election system that we have. Yeah. There's... Yeah the people that you support and the people that you don't support there's your tribe and and some of yes. it is on a very benign level the decisions on a local level that are being made well maybe uh, i'm not happy with the they're they're doing some changes proposed changes in the road system to quiet the roads it's such an odd expression <laughs> well uh, okay so we call it calming over here. Road, road calming, calming, yes. You know, it's yes. not the road that's yes. the problem, guys. It's the people. I know. It's just on it was. It. It's such an <laughs> anyway. odd expression, and you can think, well, you know, so maybe I'm in the group that doesn't really like change because the roads are the way that the roads are, <laughs> or maybe I'm in the group that is going to really enjoy having a safer bike lane and a better pedestrian access. And 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 yeah. who knows? There, but there's there are pros and cons on both sides. So you, so I can see it as well. You know, here's a choice: do we take action? Do we not take action? And it's hard not to see that in a as a uh, here are two choices: which do we choose? Does that mm. automatically become exactly. a tribe? How do we do it when, without yeah. Yeah. becoming tribal? I can't picture it. I know. Uh, no, and I have read Nancy McLean's Democracy in Chains, so I get quite afraid of, because actually what happens if you do that, I think, is that 
decent people opt out of politics and then the only people left voting are the people who like being tribal and and, and democracy is very far from perfect even Churchill I, I do not think Churchill was a good or a nice person but he said some quite intelligent things at times and he said democracy is the worst system ever invented except for all yeah. the other systems yes so it, you know it is what we've got and I think there are a lot of problems with it but but we have to remember that well I don't know do we Okay, I'm going to risk inserting this and you can edit it out if you decide you don't like okay. it. But I've spent quite a lot of time studying Steve Bannon. And Steve Bannon was interviewed by Michael Moore after the Trump victory. And Michael Moore said, how do you do it? You on the right. And Bannon said, because there is nothing we will not do. There is no nothing that we will not do and you have scruples. <laughs> And we are going for headshots and you guys are still in a pillow fight. And I hear that and I watch, you know, Bannon, without question, was running Johnson and Cummings in our election. And I saw what happens when you have people who are going for headshots and other people who are still in a pillow fight. And this is the ultimate tribalism. You know, I'm saying that side is is wrong and and they terri- terrify me this is why i'd rather like heights um study on amygdalas to be redone because i can f- I, since the brexit vote over here i could feel my amygdala getting bigger and i am no longer quite so keen to explain to people in very rational terms why they might not want to follow the route they're following i'm much more likely to get to the point where i can feel my blood pressure soaring through my skull and i have to leave the room i find it physically quite difficult to be in the room with our local mp and i have to be because we're trying to run a conference i think of myself as a peaceful relaxed meditative person until i'm near this person and and then i turn into this kind of raging monster <laughs> and and i i'm you know doing everything that i know how to do to to calm all of my systems done, but my amygdala is, is just in total, absolute, he is the epitome of the other tribe, you have to destroy him now mode. So I'm watching that with great interest and still endeavouring to, to find the ways around it. So I get caught between having read a lot about Bannon, having read, there's a book called Democracy in Chains by an American professor, a woman called Nancy McLeod, and I encourage everybody to read it because it's very, very, very frightening and it is being played out as we speak. Tribalism isn't good, but on the other hand, you have an election coming. How do we, is there time even, particularly when one side is very invested in maintaining the maximal amount of tribalism? If the other side decides to go untribal, is th- is that how it works? Because, you know, we watched what happened in any hunter-gatherer community when the white Western people arrived, whether it's Africa or the Americas or the Antipodes, the people who believed in decency and honesty and compassion and talking to people ended up dead. And, you know, it was it was like bringing a bunch of flowers to a gunfight and it didn't work. And so and, and I so I hear Schmachtenberger and think we need to get to the point where we're all just bringing our bunches of flowers and going, gosh, your flowers are pretty. My flowers are pretty. Shall we agree that everybody's flowers are pretty? And we need to do that or we're going to wipe ourselves out. But the other balance to that is if we're in the middle of a knife fight, it might not be the time to start smelling the roses. And I, I, I am in a quandary. I, I genuinely don't know. I think we can read a lot and we can learn a lot about how to have conversations 
on a person-to-person level that will help to bridge the divide. I believe we can do that. I believe it's necessary. You have, what, nine months before an election? Yes. If if everybody could have 10 conversations that bridge the divide, would it be what we want? Because in the end, we're still going to the end of that conversation is still, hey, we'd like you to vote for our side, not your side. It, it's like, it feels a bit like the, the snake swallowing its own tail. Does that make sense? That, that we're in we're in a kind of weird sort of catch-22 of we don't want to be tribal, but we have to be. And we want you to be on our tribe and you want us to be on your tribe. And how do we how do we have that conversation? This may not be heading the way you thought it was going no, to go. No, it, it, it is. I think it is the fear that I mean, certainly if you've read any history at all, even a smidge of history, you know that humans can be unbelievably, unbelievably brutal. And yep. that that is the great fear that when you have these climate change catastrophes, the as the oceans rise and cities are mm. uh, threatened and people have to flee or the droughts that where there are uh, regions of the planet that become uh, desperately uninhabitable and people have to flee, that you have mm. desperate people who have nothing to lose. Yeah. And you have what they need, which is resources, food, food water, water, and, and shelter, shelter yep. that that is what we are trying to really stave off mm. is that societal collapse yeah. those appearance of control and civility and manners that keeps the knife from your throat as it were so maybe that brings us back to you know horse people can make a difference what is it <laughs> what what can we be doing to to get even more uh, carbon sequestered in our soils so that we are at least mm. putting off for a little bit for a few more years the yeah. the societal collapse um, because what you're describing is imaginable horribly imaginable I mm. mean we've uh, you have only yes. to take the second world war as the model of what can happen mm. so it is imaginable but it is it is absolutely what we, whatever we can do to, avoid. to postpone yeah. it, to avoid it, to uh, alter that path even a little bit. It seems to me we need to be doing it. Yeah. So, so here's the thought. Because Lakoff's model, let's let's go back okay. to Lakoff's model. It was a very interesting, his frames of uh, strict father versus nurturing parent. And one of the people who kind of took that idea and ran with it was a guy in Britain called Tom Crompton, who works for something called the Common Cause Foundation. And he's really interesting because he created a slightly different model, which was a model of intrinsic versus extrinsic values. And he has these mapped out and quite a complex array. And we can find a an image. It works much better as a visual image. But at one end, you have the intrinsic values, which are the Values that I create for myself that give me a sense of self-worth. So a sense of pride in the things that I do, a sense of joyful compassion for myself, a sense, often senses of community and companionship and having a place in my own community and culture. And at the other end of this spectrum, 
are the extrinsic values, which are the ones that tend to be bought with money. So I have a big car or I have the right Rolex that costs more than you're you know, ever going to earn in your entire life, or I have the private jet, or I'm a member of the right club, or whatever it is that, that you know, I'm wearing the right clothes today, or I got the ticket to the right party. And that everybody slides up and down this spectrum. Because the thing about Lakoff was you tend either to be strict father or nurturing parent. And shifting from one to the other, certainly in my original reading of him, was quite hard. Not impossible, obviously, and we all know people who have. But in Crompton's worldview, the more we can talk to people about intrinsic values, the less they are oriented towards extrinsic values and vice versa. And the person who first taught me about this was uh, Della Duncan, who I will introduce you to at some point. She lives in California now. And she lived and worked at Schumacher when I was there doing the Masters in Economics. And she said that she had been steeped in the intrinsic values of Schumacher. So you get up in the morning and you meditate, then you make breakfast together with the community, you eat together, you sing together, you study together, you play together, you learn together. Everything is communitarian and everything is based around compassion and all of the intrinsic values that we just mentioned. And she had to go and interview somebody in a local city and she hadn't been off campus for like six months and she got off the train and there are adverts for stuff and she walks up the high street and there are shops with stuff in the windows and she said I got halfway up the high street and realised I really needed a new pair of <laughs> shoes and got you know to the end of the high street and realised no actually I really don't but isn't it interesting that all her extrinsic values had just been triggered simply by being in a perfectly average city that's, that is basically our, our entire culture is, is based around consumerism now and, and it triggers our extrinsic values. And so Crompton's thesis, which is borne out with a lot of very interesting work that he's done, is that the more that we can trigger each other's intrinsic values, our own and those around us, the less we are motivated by the extrinsic values. And the more we are motiva- motivated by intrinsic values, the less tribal we are. And the more we are prepared to see other humans and the other than human world, you know, the whole of the rest of the web of life as part of one big tribe. Because if what really matters with the tribalism and the oxytocin, it's is that we expand the boundaries of our tribe to be the whole world, because then we work for everybody. Because when people begin to work for their tribe, whatever it is, after, you know, after a hurricane or a fire or a flood, everybody pulls together and everybody works together and they put down their differences. I listened to a brilliant podcast with Bessel van der Kolk, who's an amazing um, trauma specialist at Harvard. And he went to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and he went to Haiti after a tsunami, I think, or hurricane, can't remember. And he said he got in each of these places, he got there and people had been devastated, but they were working together to fix stuff. They were beginning to build new houses. They were you know, sorting out, clearing, getting rid of the floods. And then FEMA would turn up and go, no, 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 you're not allowed to do this anymore. You have to stop work until we worked out wh- who's going to get the compensation and where the money goes. And he said, people were not traumatized while they were able to be working together. But as soon as they were stopped from working together, and, and he ascribes this partly the need to do physical work but I think there was also that sense of they were building community 
And then they were stopped and they had, you know, the external strict father figure going, some of you are going to get some money and some of you aren't. And we're going to randomly assign that. You know, for you, it'll seem random. For us, there will be some algorithm. And and they started fighting amongst themselves because what else could they do? And they've got all this adrenaline and, you know, the whole sympathetic system has just been totally activated. Your Your entire life has just been destroyed. And you're not able to do anything to fix it, and you can't rebuild your community. You know, lesson for post disasters: don't send FEMA in. But, um, but for the rest of us, that sense of okay, so, so I don't know. In election year, what is the best tactic? I genuinely don't know. And I think the more we explore it, the more interesting it'll get. But could we each, for for the sake of humanity and the sake of the rest of however long we have before the floodwaters rise? How strong a community could we build in our horse barns, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our work, wherever we meet people? What is it? What does it take to really trigger everybody's intrinsic values and build a sense of community? That does makes, that make sense? That makes sense. And that is, that is the picture. So when we said earlier, you know, I can't even imagine, I can't picture the non-tribal, but that is the really a picture that's very clear and and feels doable. Somehow we have found a hopeful note, a doable step. So I'm going to hit the pause button on this conversation. We're only halfway through, but this is a good stopping place. I'm going to leave you to think about Manda's question. How strong a community could we build in our horse barns, in our families, in our communities, in our work, wherever we meet people, what does it take to really trigger everybody's intrinsic values and to build a sense of community? Let's ponder that through the week, and next week we'll continue this conversation. Until then, remember, horse people can make a difference. Together, we'll figure out what that means. <laughs>